Are you about to go on vacation sometime soon? Well, in that case, you should take a look at the letter of 1 Peter, where you can learn all about suffering when you're away from home. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. So, the mustache... I feel like we haven't had this talk. As as a friend, um, the Bible says to confront one another, (laughs) to turn a a fool from his error, you know, and uh, so... The wife approves. The wife approves. approves. And honestly, it's just a part of my new job. I got a new job, and my job title is... Mustache. Production specialist. And so this comes with the job. It's production specialist stash. Okay. Yeah. So comment. Let us know. What do you think of the the mustache on a scale of one to Tom Selleck? I've already had many compliments. Okay. Good, man. Well, you know, you're doing your thing. Yeah. Jesse walked up and said, I feel like you have more power or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. Don't encourage this. Hey, we're supposed to talk about the Bible, not my mustache. Yeah. So whatever the votes are in the comments, (laughs) that will determine the fate of the mustache. Fair. Fair um, enough. Hopefully, we yeah. We can get some good comments there. So we're in a section of the New Testament known as the Catholic epistles, mm-hmm. not because the Pope likes them, but because they're universal. They're generally written to broader audiences. Fair. And so we're in, we're in the book of First Peter, um, which is it's a good book. It's a great book. First and second Peter are great. Yeah, Kind well, of getting to the tail end of the New Testament here. But well, some good yeah. stuff. And that's a dodgy question like we always do. Who wrote this book? Well, yes, you'll be shocked to hear that Peter wrote the book of First Peter. But again, it's a lot, you know, because First Timothy wasn't written by Timothy, so you got to keep on your toes. But that's because Paul wrote a lot of letters, right? Peter only, we only have the two, so he gets his named after him. So that's First Peter. Um, Peter, of course, needs no introduction, really. If you've been reading the New Testament, you know Peter was the apostle of Christ. He's kind of a big deal. Um, and there's, there's certainly debate on whether Peter wrote this book, but there's debate on everything. And so, you know, one of the one of the questions people will raise is, well, isn't the Greek too sophisticated for a fisherman from Galilee? Hmm. You know, and of course, if you don't know Greek, you're like, ah. But you just read it, and you're like, this is a, this is a very well written, well thought out um, book. And it's amazing how so many of the books in Scripture were written by people who were kind of more backwater people hmm. in terms of the empires of their times, and yet they wrote books that transformed the entire world. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there's some sort of divine inspiration in these books or something. I don't know where that, that would come uh, from. But I, I do think, you know, God is using, God's not going to just make someone eloquent like and know all these words who doesn't already. Most likely he's using the personalities of these authors. But there's a there's a, a few things there. You know, I mean, I think one thing is Peter probably wasn't poor. Mm-hmm. Like we always paint him as like a poor fisherman. They've uncovered what they believe to be Peter's house in right. Capernaum, pretty big house, and right? it's it's pretty it's pretty big. Yeah. yeah, so he probably had servants. He probably they probably had an enterprise. So like when, a business owner. Yeah, so like yeah. when these guys are ditching their their dad, they're kind of ditching the family business. Hmm. So we we don't need to think that they're necessarily dirt poor. Some might have been, some might not have been. Right. This ruins my entire concept of uh, what the apostles uh, were like. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I not all that. of them. I'm sure there's a variety, but Peter wasn't necessarily poor. Obviously, there's a lot of interaction between different nationalities in that this time. So you would pick up on a lot of different language, and and Peter ends up going through a lot of the empire. So you know that actually makes a lot of stuff. sense. Yeah. Right. So yeah. so there's it's, it would be common for people to know multiple languages, and okay. you got you got to do a European country 
they're probably going to know English. They're probably going to know. Which is great because they don't have to learn other languages when you yeah. travel. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> great. It makes it so much easier as, a, as an American. And another <laughs> question people ask is, well, why doesn't Peter mention any of the big events from Jesus's life in his writings? And so that's a good question. Mm-hmm. But, all, but in Second Peter, people are going to doubt that Peter wrote that. And part of the reason people will cast doubt on that is because that author, who I believe is also Peter, mentions one of the his eyewitness accounts of Jesus Christ, right? Mm-hmm. That he saw Jesus transfigured. And so they go, oh, well, he must have been using that as a, a way to authenticate himself when he's not really the author, Peter. So again, it feels like sometimes, no matter which way you go, someone's going to use that as a reason to doubt you. Of course. So, yeah. It's Peter. We'll go with Peter. And when was it written? Um, it seems to have been written from Rome. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 13... He says, she who is at Babylon, who was likewise chosen, sends you greeting. So a lot of people take that to mean Rome, right? Mm-hmm. So that yeah. kind of takes the focal point as opposed to Babylonian Empire in the Old Testament. So Rome is sort of the new Babylon. So he was probably in Rome in the 60s and then dies not too long afterwards. So mm. 62, 63, 64, somewhere around there is probably when this was written. So both these books seem to be written kind of toward the end of his life. Cool. And then who's uh, Peter writing to? Uh, more general audience. So if you look at chapter 1, verse 1, he says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's giving this kind of letter that's going to go to a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. So there's a broad audience. Yeah. I love it when in the um, the letter that is addressed to is just at the beginning. Makes yeah. It easy. yeah. Straightforward. Yep. You know? yep. He says who he is. He says who he's writing to. It's all great. Okay. Why was he writing it? Well, clearly there's there's suffering happening in these churches. And so maybe there's a heightening persecution at this time. We're not totally sure, but Peter wants to encourage them in the midst of this mm-hmm. hardship and suffering and persecution. And so that's what he's writing about. The theme of the book is holiness and suffering. Yeah. We're going to see the exile as being a big theme in this book as well. Mm-hmm. And that ties us back to the Old Testament picture of exile. Um, but he also wants us not just to see what suffering is and how we're in exile, but also how do we live and live holy lives in the midst of this suffering that we experience. Mm. So it's it's a very practical book, yeah. very helpful book. Right. Yeah, I think it's going to be a really useful book for um, the Western church as we move into more of a post-Christian age and stuff. It'll help us a lot, and Christians yeah. think through all sorts of issues of suffering. Yeah, yeah absolutely. How is it uh, structured? Well, chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, is all about our identity as God's people. And then chapter the rest of chapter 2 through chapter 4 is our calling in the world. Mm-hmm. So how do we be distinct as God's people? How do we endure suffering? So it goes from our identity in the beginning to our calling. And then chapter 5 is words to elders or pastors and, and the closing. So it's pretty, pretty straightforward as to what it's about. Very cool. Okay. So, yeah, you want to jump in? I would love to jump in. Let's jump in. The book of First Peter. All right. So let's just, I love the way he starts here in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Man, just such a strong start. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is similar to how with Paul, Paul's language mm-hmm. in, like, in Ephesians. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he has caused us to be born again. This idea of new birth is prominent in the Gospel of John. It's prominent in Paul's writings as well. And here he's being really clear about that God is the one who caused us to be born again. Yeah. Right. And that metaphor itself, if you're born, it's because someone else took the initiative. Right. Um, it's not your own act. Right. And we're born again to a living hope 
through Christ's resurrection. So mm-hmm. Christ is alive. So our hope is alive. It's strong. We, we have confidence as to what's going to come in the future. And then he says, verse 4, to an inheritance that is un- imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So this inheritance that we receive from God, he's saying this is something that cannot fade away. Mm-hmm. It can't be diminished. It can't be ruined. It's sure. And it's, it's being guarded for you in heaven. Love that. And he says, who by God's power, verse 5, are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we're waiting on that. We're hoping in that. We're trusting that God is going to send Jesus again. Now, there's an eschatological hope, right? Mm-hmm. So it, we see in verse 6 and 7, why does, God, why does God bring suffering? Verse 6 is, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, here's the why, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hmm. So there's many reasons why that God gives in the Bible as to why they're suffering. Right. And of course, we shouldn't just be one-dimensional with these. We should know all these reasons, and we should counsel people with these reasons. But one of the reasons, clearly here, is that we our faith would be tested, mm-hmm. that we'd be refined by suffering, and that through that, through the, our changed lives and our increased trust in God, we would bring more glory to God. Yeah, so he, he is honored above ourselves. Yeah. yeah. So suffering is a is a good gift mm-hmm. from God, even though it doesn't look like that way in the moment. Yeah, it doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. No one wants it. But yeah, as Christians, you need to learn and train yourself to see God in it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So he, some just great insights on suffering here. Then we see in, in verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, okay, so think clearly, be sober-minded, right? Be serious and set your hope on that grace. So I love this because it's so easy to think, okay, well, God is giving us grace. He's sending Christ again. Those are all great realities. But here, Peter isn't just stopping there. He's saying, fix your minds on that. Think on that, Hmm. right? Um, Live in light of that and be prepared, right? Get ready for the coming of Jesus, prepare your minds for actions, for action. And he goes on to talk about um, that we must be holy. And he actually quotes there, right, verse 16, he's quoting from Leviticus. So if you've been going through the Bible with us from the beginning to end, you, you remember Leviticus, right? Be holy for I am holy. Mm-hmm. And so the, that call of holiness is still a reality in our world today. In fact, it's a bigger call, if anything, than it was in the Old Testament. Yeah. Because we know the one who is holy, he has sanctified us, he has made us saints, he has called us holy, that's our identity, and so now our life should reflect that. Yeah, new creatures act like a new creature. Yeah, yeah. so we should, have, we should have a changed life. So verse 17, he says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he brings up this, this metaphor of exile... And this is such an important metaphor from the Old Testament, right? Mm-hmm. So if you remember the storyline of the Old Testament, there was the Exodus first. So Israel was in Egypt for over 400 years. I think it was, I think it was 430 years. And then God brings them out through Moses. But after a time in the Promised Land, they're taken in exile again. Mm-hmm. So the exile becomes sort of a <clears throat> second Exodus. Mm-hmm. So they're taken out of the land, and then God brings them back into the land. Mm-hmm. 
by the decree of Cyrus and all those events that we saw in the Old Testament. So the exile time is a time where you're, you don't belong. Mm-hmm. Remember Daniel and his friends? Those were exiles. They were exiles in Babylon. And now he's speaking to us as exiles in Babylon. Right. You know, a metaphorical exile on a metaphorical Babylon. But we're in the same position. That means, well, that means a lot of things, right? It means we don't belong here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it means, and that's an important thing, a very simple truth, but so important to understand. We don't belong here. We're never going to fit in perfectly, yeah. right? This is a time of exile. This is a time of suffering. This is a time where we don't fit in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was reading a, a book recently that was talking about people that lived through the communist uh, era in Eastern Europe, right? They were in under communism and how they dealt with that. And I remember one of the people really stood out to me. They said, we dressed our kids weird. They did, we dressed our kids weird. And that, that, I thought that was kind of a strange thing to say. But they, what they said was, we decided to dress our kids weird so that they would never f- fit in. Hmm. It was an intentional choice because they knew they couldn't speak up or they would die. But they knew that what the kids are being taught was evil. Mm-hmm. And so they, they did certain things in a way where it made the kids understand they didn't fit in. Right. And that's just really stuck with me. Not that I think we should dress our kids weird. Yeah. Although maybe, you know, some home homespun dresses, you know, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Go the full homeschooling route. <laughs> but uh but yeah, we don't that's as Christians we should know that. We just we don't fit in. And yeah. that's okay. And we should be joyful about that. Because if we don't fit in here, then that means we were never meant to find our ultimate joy here. Right. Yeah. We were meant for something better. Yeah. So uh, I love that that metaphor that he uses in this little book. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful perspective. And in the light of suffering, it makes it all that easier to wrap your head around suffering. If this world is filled with so much suffering and everyone does experience that, then, wow, we have a better world to look forward to, the one yeah. that we were meant for. Yeah, so, absolutely. So. so that gives us hope. So what we are now, at a church here, to use a metaphor from, I think, Jonathan Lehman, right? We're just like an outpost. We're just a, we're a, an, an embassy, I think is the, the term he uses, right? Mm-hmm. So we were this little piece of a different country in mm-hmm. the country we're in. Yeah. And we have, we have sort of different rights. We have a different hope. We have a different homeland. But we have connection to this world. And we're ambassadors into this world. And we're seeking to make inroads and to love people and all that. Mm-hmm. But our home is ultimately somewhere else. Yeah. So can't, can't say enough how important that is. And then he says this, verse 18 speaking of what Christ did for us, right? He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I love this. This is, this is interesting language. He says, you're ransomed, you're bought out of the slave market of sin. And he says, you're ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So some of us have parents or grandparents that we immediately think of when we hear this kind of language that lived in futility, that lived for this world and put their hope in this world. And we've been bought out of that. We have a hope that's beyond this world. But I love that he's, what he's saying here is that there's God, Christ purchased us not just to forgive us, but he purchased us that we would have a changed life. Yeah, He purchased us that we would be someone different. I was reading uh, John Piper's book, Providence, and um, he says... He says this, is the aim of God's shedding the blood of his son was a ransom. And of course, we know that ransom would be out of out of sin and judgment. But he says, and the aim of the ransom was liberation from an empty, feudal 
dead end way of living. So it's not just that God forgives us from our sin and says, go on living. He wants to purchase us out of that lifestyle Mm -hmm. so we can live for his glory. So it's so important to understand that the goal of God is that we would be sanctified and one day glorified, Mm -hmm. fully brought into his image. Yeah. So he goes on to say in verse 19, he says, you weren't, you weren't bought, you weren't ransomed with the perishable things, but verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Hmm. So we have the precious blood of Christ, the infinite price that was paid to rescue us. And of course, that lamb language reminds us of the Passover lamb, mm-hmm. reminds us of the sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament. Yeah. What a great reminder of, yeah, just the, the love of God for his people and yeah, the call for people to live differently, and yeah, even even a reminder of the sovereignty of God. It's not like we earned our way out of slavery; we were purchased. Yeah, so yeah, that's great. Love it. Let's go to chapter two. We can skip ahead a little bit here. We got some stuff I want to cover here. Uh, There's an interesting connection to uh, to Exodus in chapter two, verse nine. That shouldn't go without mention. He says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that's 1 Peter 2, 9. I love that. So he's quoting really directly, alluding to Exodus 19, mm-hmm. when God calls his people in front of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he says this to them. It's sort of the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So this same identity is given to us. In a different way, right? We're not Israel per se, but we have the same identity, the same, um, the same label as God's people and as a kingdom of priests where every single person in the church is a priest that intercedes for others, that brings God's good news and also prays to God on behalf of people. Hmm. So really, really cool passage. So that's sort of the first section where we see, um, we see our, our identity as God's people. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, we see a new, a new section, which is our calling in the world. So how do we be distinct in the world? How do we endure suffering in the world? Mm-hmm. So not just who we are, but how do we live? So he uses that, that, this metaphor again of being exiles in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So again, here, exiles, so he's calling us aliens or sojourners, right? We're foreigners, we're outsiders, but we have to fight against these passions that will destroy us. And then in verse 12, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Hmm. So we, we have to live in a certain way and our holy living, it has a missional edge to it. I think often we can separate those two things. We can say, you know, some Christians are more outreach focused and more missional, and some Christians are more holy mm-hmm. and they're more theological or whatever. And we can kind of separate that. Like, yeah, I'm not great at outreach, but I live a good life, or vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. The person who's really passionate about missions and their life is terrible, but they're like, well, I'm I'm doing this, that makes up for it. But here Peter connects the two. Right. That's good. He says, You you have to be holy so that you can have sort of a gospel credibility among the among Gentiles. He's right. not saying 
do what the Gentiles want you to do, right? Do the things that will make them happy in order to appease them, and they'll come to Jesus. That's not what he's saying. what a lot of people do, I guess. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, like, yeah, I mean, we heard a lot of that during the COVID season. Right, I don't exactly. want to beat that dead horse, but, right, like, you have to love your neighbors by doing all the things that they want you to do, like not going to church for three years. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm not going to do that. You know, so that's, so that's not on the table. We barely made it three months. <laughs> Suffering <laughs> and dying. Yeah, withering away. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we, but we do the things that God tells us to do, trusting that he's going to shine his light through them. Uh-huh. Not, it's not about adding, you know, or I, I hear a lot of pastors in the Bay Area saying, we have to care about climate change like the world cares about climate change. You know, I'm like, well, no, no. Because I don't think being a climate alarmist and saying the end is nigh because Keith drives a big old truck, which he does. I mean, look at his mustache. Um, but uh, that's not how we we show that we're holy. Right. Is by adopting the same fervor about certain worldly things that the, the world does. So we just have two topics we could talk a lot about there, but we're not going to. Yeah, I've uh, <laughs> held my tongue, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for accusing you of ruining the environment, but that's oh, a fact. Well, you know, those of you with Teslas are also ruining the environment. So. <laughs> they are, because they're binding a lot of stuff. Now, see, if you really love the environment, you drive a 93 Honda Accord, like me. You just keep it's recy- called recycling. If you it's really using. love the environment, you, I don't know, ride your bike, ride your bike to work. No, no, no. I'm I'm the truly holy one here. Uh, <laughs> let's go to verse thirteen, chapter two, verse thirteen. <clears throat> speaking of uh, speaking of obedience to authorities, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There's a lot here, I mean, that you can unpack, but honor the authorities, obey them. Of course, there is there are limitations to that. You don't do everything someone says if they say, the deny God. authority is God. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I'll get, like, again, exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bowing down, right, of right. course. Yeah. But he's saying, by doing good, this is how you silence foolish people. Right. So don't worry too much about every argument, everything the world throws at us, the accusations you might get as a Christian, do good. Yeah, and good is defined by what's in Scripture. Yeah, so, focus on yeah. that. Trust that God's going to vindicate you on the last day. It's not up to you. There's a lot of freedom in that. <clears throat> yeah. Um, we should uh, we should kind of move along here. You, you're talking way too much, Keith. Well, You're slowing us down here. I'm just trying to join the party. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I love, the, I love the, this example in suffering. This is so crucial that we understand kind of the the thrust of this book, but he's talking about suffering again. And he says, it's, it's a good thing in verse chapter two, verse 20. It's good. Uh, if you suffer, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. If you suffer for doing good. Mm-hmm. And then he says this for to this, you have been called. This is your calling here. You ready for this? Mm-hmm. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Mm. And what was his example? Well, he goes on talking about how he suffered and he didn't revile. He didn't sin in return. And he bore our sins in his body on the tree, right? So there's so many things that you know we could talk about with the death of Christ. The number one would be justification for sinners, right? That God forgives us of our sins. But here we also see that there's an example for us to follow. Mm-hmm. It's not an either or. And some people will say, say, "Oh, Jesus died just to be a good example," and, mm-hmm. to, and to you know. And so we'll say, "No, he died to forgive us of our sins," and then we'll tend to maybe reject that example idea altogether. Mm-hmm. When it's biblical, it's just right. secondary. Right. But he showed us how we should endure with suffering. That's good. 
which is that suffering is in God's plan. It's used for good. It can accomplish the greatest good in the world in this case. Right. So we, we entrust ourselves to God. So something to meditate on, I would, I would encourage you. Also connections here to Isaiah 53, right? In mm-hmm. verse 24, oh, yeah. he himself bore our yeah. sins in his body on the tree. Um, Deuteronomy 20 as well, you know, cursed is he who's hanged on the tree. You can listen to those those uh, sections of scripture if you want to hear more about that. But we gotta gotta get moving here. Um, let's look a little bit at let's look a little bit at chapter three, verse eighteen. Can of worms here. So this is an interesting passage. So it says, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit." Okay, so this first verse is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. God, God, or Christ suffers to cleanse us from our sins. He was put to death in the flesh, right? And then he goes on, verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So some people take this to mean that Jesus, after he died, went into hell or into some sort of purgatory or something to go and preach to the spirits that were alive in Noah's time. Mm-hmm. So I, I just want to, I want to clear this up. I don't think that's what it's saying here at all. I think what it's saying is that Christ was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And that he had formerly in Noah's time proclaimed the gospel to those people who were alive back then. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best way to understand this passage. Cause I don't, a lot of people get hung up on this. Did Christ go to hell? Did he preach down there or whatever? I don't believe that at all. Um, so I think he's speaking to them, and he's preaching through Noah. Yeah. So he is in the, his spirit back then, before he comes to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He's proclaiming the good news to them, mm-hmm. which we saw we saw back in in the section on Noah, how that's a prefigurement of the gospel. Yeah. And how there was a need for repentance and trust in the the, the saving family of God, mm-hmm. right? God's God's chosen family. So I think that's that's how you understand that passage, but it is a difficult one. But Christ is proclaiming the gospel through Noah in that pre-flood period. Yeah. Is the idea? Mm-hmm. I mean, you get you get a little taste of that in Hebrews eleven, I think. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about chapter five because we are elders, and I just I just love this chapter sure. chapter yeah. five verse one. I think I always like this that God you know speaks directly to where I'm at. This is cool. Mm-hmm. He says, "I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ." Uh, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Mm-hmm. I love this. I love this. So here's our calling, right? We're called essentially to be happy about the, the ministry work we have to do. Mm-hmm. I love that, you know, that we're not to be under compulsion, that we're not to be looking for shameful gain, that we're not to be domineering, no. but that we're to, I think the whole idea here is to joyfully do the ministry, that God gives us an amazing gift in being able to do ministry, whether it's teaching in this format, teaching on Sunday, ministering to people, having conversations, right, discipling people, whatever it is that we get to do, it's such a joy to be able to do it, right? right? And so God is just so good to to bless us in that way. And so if you have that heart of thankfulness about your work and the the ministry you get to do, whether it's, you know, your job or it's a volunteer thing, 
God, I think, brings so much blessing through that. Mm. But it's it's not something that we should just slog along and do. And verse 4 is encouraging, right? <laughs> and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Mm. So we have a shepherd who is our boss, right? who's a higher shepherd. Mm-hmm. We're under shepherds at the church. He is the true shepherd. And so everything we do, we do for him. Right. So I love that. Um, last thoughts here. Verses 10 and 11 are great. Great closing here. He says, after you have suffered a little while, a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a great benediction at the end here, uh, reminding us that God's the one who does all of it. He's the one who's going to, um, to bring us through suffering and establish us eternally in his kingdom. Can't wait for that. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us for this week's uh, Daily Gospel. We'll see you next week for the book of Second Peter.